This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In Podcast Network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Now, welcome to episode 21 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host, as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is my co-host, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello, everybody. Uh, on tonight's show, we are going to be looking at a Netflix uh, recent acquisition, The Night Comes For Us. Um, this is from the same director as Headshot, and has already been it as the spiritual successor to the raid so it's going to be very interesting to see how this one actually sort of plays obviously because at the moment while obviously the raid was certainly popular when it came out there's been certainly a little bit of backlash towards violent martial arts movies in the sort of recent months so it'll be interesting to see uh, how that one obviously played when we look at that in the bit later in the show but obviously before we get into all that i mean it's obviously time to ask obviously what's been holding your interest since the last show and I mean obviously Stephen, since we uh, last spoke last spoke uh, obviously talking about the whaling back on our previous episode with uh, the lovely Zoe from Zobo with Shotgun uh, what's obviously been sort of holding your interest because obviously we had the Halloween break I mean were you looking at any sort of horror or just anything in general? I've um, actually been trying to catch up on some of my commitments with Eastern Kicks, so I've been watching some things maybe I wouldn't normally watch. I watched a really nice Taiwanese film called Hang On In Their Kids, which is sort of a Aboriginal Stand By Me, I think, would be the closest thing, although no dead bodies. Um, yeah. And also watching a film to give me some background on tonight's um, Dark Tales, um, Mimbo, um, a, je- a tale of gentle Japanese extortion. So sort of digging into the past and sitting up on some commitments. And uh, that will be continuing on for the next month. I've got a bag of things I need to review. So all sorts of interesting things coming up. Oh, definitely, sounds like it. I mean, for myself, I've I've been stacking up all these projects of things to watch. But it's just, as I said, it's just been trying to find time to watch any of it. So I've got currently, I mean, on over here in the UK, uh, through all four, you can watch the Japanese series Crow's Blood, which was recently shown as part of Fright Fest uh, on, on the film four. And uh, now they've got it as one of their box sets that you can enjoy. And it's kind of nice to actually see a Walter Presents production where it's not some Norwegian crime drama, which seems to be there most favourite thing to put on there so I'm kind of looking forward to see it and it comes with the promise of extreme violence which is always fun to see uh, I've also got the Piper as well to watch uh, another one which was shown over Film Force Fright Fest season and uh, of course I've yet to uh, watch that so hopefully get that watched before the next episode but I did finally manage to cross off one of my cinema shames in the last episode and that was to watch the anime Vampire Hunter D uh, this is a real throwback sort of anime from really when they were starting to anime was starting to get recognized as this format that could appeal to sort of younger uh, audiences and if you've yet to obviously see it it's definitely worth checking out it's a fun blend of sci-fi and fantasy as uh, this vampire uh, demon hunter called D uh, comes to this land to take on a head vampire and descend into Dracula along the way also encountering various other mythical creatures as well. It's a fun little violent romp and uh, certainly one to ch- worth checking out, especially if you're a fan of like late 80s, early 90s anime. A more recent sort of anime side of things and what filling in the sort of wait for the final season of Game of Thrones quite nicely is the series Akeem Ga Kill. Uh, this is a, as I said, this is a more recent series and certainly if you're a fan of Game of Thrones and the sort of person who likes seeing your favorite characters suddenly bumped off then you certainly like this one um the it uh the series itself it follows this group of assassins who are taking out the evil overlords of this city um again you've got that wonderful blend of sci-fi and fantasy as it exists on this completely unique sort of timeline uh with all these 
assassins and their counterparts all having sort of fa different fantastical weapons. It's a really uh, fun show. It's both funny and extremely <coughs> violent, which is always a wonderful combination and something that worked for The Evil Dead and certainly works here for this series as well. But um, it's also refreshing as well that we got a show that isn't sort of drenched in sort of fan service, which seems to be an overwhelming issue with a lot of modern anime. And uh, to that extent, I mean, Akim Gokilm is well worth watching. It's very easy to uh, get into and watch. It doesn't go particularly too heavy. And there's also a pretty decent dub out there as well. If you're uh, not particularly wanting to sit down and watch 24 episodes of a, a subbed, sorry, a, a subtitled uh, anime. So that would be my sort of uh, recommendation. And we will be having a write-up uh, going up on the blog in the next few days. Hopefully by the time this episode's out, that write-up will be up there. So, But, I mean, obviously, even for yourself, I mean, is there anything that you can see sort of coming up on the horizon? Are you kind of, like, really excited to see it all? Or? Um, not in terms of Netflix and such like, but I have just been given access to a really interesting film which has been um, uh, reviewing really well and doing the whole... Um, festival scene um have you heard of the film one cut of the dead i haven't no it's a very <laughs> indie um zombie film um that's getting amazing reviews around the place um japanese indie cinema obviously over here in the west is probably given it some sort of leg up by third window films and they've been um they've been putting it out at festivals and the odd showing and i imagine it'll turn up on um on DVD fairly soon, but I've got I've got a copy to uh, to review, and so I'll be spending some time in the next couple of weeks putting a review up there. Probably be putting it up at Guelo Ramblings, um, but I'm yeah really excited about that because everyone's been just going, oh it's brilliant, it's the best zombie comedy since Shaun of the Dead. I mean I don't know how many there've been, but you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm kind of excited, and it sounds like it's a little bit more interesting than that, um, than just a pure zombie film. It's a sort of a bit of a some clever stuff going on with filmmaking as well. That's cool. I mean, yeah, I mean, there are a few zombie comedies out there. I mean, you've obviously got um, Bio Zombie. This is one that sort of jumps out to mind. I think there's also Juan of the Dead um, as well, which came out a few years back as well. So there's uh, definitely a few zombie comedies out there. The problem is that a lot of them aren't that particularly funny, and sort of Shaun of the Dead set the uh, bar quite high. And. Uh, it's not really sort of been met met recently, so it'll be obviously interesting to see it, see that because I'm always interested when we have like an Asian zombie movie, something like Trash comes along, and it's I don't know why do we not see that many sort of Asian zombie movies? I mean, is it the particular reason why zombies aren't as in trend? I mean, well, I think there is a bit of it, isn't there, in some of those um, Japanese wobbly plastic rubbery movies sort of the pseudo gore ones but i guess they are not a asian horror trope um you get similar things with the undead i suppose in some of the indonesian movies and such like but the, the classic brain-eating zombie i guess is a western invention built on top of haitian mythology isn't it <laughs> so, so yeah so george a romero's got a lot to answer for but um I, I guess it's it's guess just not one of it's just not one of the, a bit like vampires, yeah. So even though I guess, I guess we have a fair bit of vampires, Western vampire stuff coming into um, certainly Japanese anime and and the like, but you know the, the classic Eastern vampire is a totally different thing. So I'm guessing the 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 classic um, zombie undead might be just something different, a, a creature that we we're not aware of. For some reason, it's just unlike. With Western cinema, where we do, apparently just can't help but churn these stupid movies out, we just don't seem to get that many when it comes to Asian cinema, it seems. And when we do, it's always sort of like zombies and something. Like when we look at uh, Versus, which is obviously a gangster movie plus zombies. Um, and I think it's. Is it uh, the Swim Team Zombie? There's one with uh, Swim Team taking on a bunch of zombies or something? I have a vague memory of that, and there's the baseball one, isn't there? Um, there's Battlefield Baseball. Ba Battlefield Baseball, that's it. Uh, such, the bunch of uh, sort of demonic baseball players who've been <laughs> yeah. face-painted green, as I recall. Um, but, uh, yeah, if, you, if you're if looking for a fun time, then 
then Battlefield uh, Baseball is one worth checking out. It's it's a little random, but it's it's uh, it's still kind of fun and has a really random musical moment. Um, and I think I revealed that the dog that belongs to the homeless guy in it is the narrator, which is even more random. But obviously, on to well, it's uh, I think it's good. Now's a good time to move on to possibly one of my favorite segments of the air show, and that's the part where we pass the control over to Stephen, who is here with a se- with uh, a segment which is kind of like Jack and Nori with added Yakuza. It's of course time for another Tales from the Asian Cinema Dark Side. Why, thank you for that um, <laughs> that introduction. <clears throat> so tonight's story, um, children, if you're sitting comfortably, is called So Who Killed Juzo Itami? The Asian film industry is like every other film industry. There's links to organised crime, suicides, murders, salacious gossip. And in this now regular series, I'm going to give you a look at the darker side of Asian cinema and tell you some tales about famous names that they don't always want you to hear. And this month we visit Japan and the mysterious story of a film director who helped kickstart a national debate about the Yakuza and may have paid the ultimate price. Now anyone who has watched a significant number of Japanese movies from the last 50 years will have undoubtedly come across the Yakuza, those shiny-jacketed, tattoo-wielding, finger-cutting Japanese gangsters styling themselves as modern-day samurai with codes of honour and a whole mythology to back it up. They were real, and somewhat tolerated, and the stories that they peddled in amphetamines but kept heroin off Japan's streets are true. But you might also be somewhat confused, because the ubiquity of the Yakuza in cinema seems at complete odds with the incredibly low crime rate and farcically high conviction rate, story for another time, that exists in modern day Japan. The truth is that the Yakuza certainly did, and do exist, but they existed on the fringes of society, in smoky bars, clubs and gambling joints. And then came the Baburu Keiki. The bubble economy of 1986-91. to Japanese people got richer, and that included the Yakuza. They made investments, got far more involved in public life, using their newfound wealth to control businesses and politicians, to bribe the police, and also to take their violent inter-gang confrontations out into the streets. And then the bubble burst. But this exposed not only the fragility of the Japanese economic miracle, but a series of business and political scandals that exposed the Yakuza in a way it really hadn't before. Let's pause now, go back in the time machine back to 1992, and talk about Juzo Itami. Itami was the son of Mansaku Itami, a famous pre-World War II filmmaker and satirist. The young Itami felt somewhat in awe of his father's reputation and flitted around careers, actor, hosting TV shows, translator of novels, amateur boxer and graphic designer to name the most well known. But then at the age of 51 he finally became a film director. 1984's The Funeral is a story about a Japanese family preparing to bury their patriarch. It's a poignant and wry look at one aspect of Japanese society. It was a huge local success, winning big at the Japanese Academy Awards, and would set the tone for Itami's future work. He was interested in poking and picking at the dichotomies inherent in Japanese culture. He said, The movies were my father's business. It was too high a mountain for me to climb. But after raising two sons and reaching the apex my father did when he died... I felt I could climb the mountain. Itami's second film was to reach even further, and this is probably his best-known work outside of Japan, the ramen western Tampopo. Now, I won't talk too much about that movie, because I'm fairly sure Elwood and I are going to look at it in a future episode, but it uses tropes from American westerns and and spaghetti westerns to tell a tale that pokes fan at Japan's obsession and near-deification of food. And with success comes money, and with money comes Taxes, which inspired his next two films, A Taxing Woman and its sequel, A Taxing Woman Returns, both starring his second wife, Nobuko Miyamoto, who you'll actually see in nearly all his movies. And two films later we reach 1992 and our two threads link up. Itami places the Yakuza in his satirical sights. 
1992's Minbo, The Gentle Art of Japanese Extortion, takes a long, hard and amusing look at Japanese gangsters. It's a brilliant film, a um, bit broader than his normal sort of film, hilarious and really pokes fun at the Yakuza, and the Yakuza did not like it. The police warned him the Yakuza might act against him, and even though the director didn't think anything would happen, he was wrong. A few days after the film was released, a group of young men attacked Itami with knives, cut his face, neck and arms. They cut very slowly. They took their time, said Itami afterwards. They could have killed me if they wanted to. The men drove off. Itami got back to his apartment and called for an ambulance. And, typically for Itami, his experience of a few days in the Japanese healthcare system inspired his next film, Daibionin. Itami was in hospital for eight days, and that, during that time he penned a public letter. Yakuza must not be allowed to deprive us of our freedom through violence and intimidation, and this is the message of my movie. What worries me most about this incident is that people might think the Yakuza are really scary. It would be a shame if people were disheartened just when the public is beginning to stand up against organised crime. His attackers were arrested and charged and given significant prison sentences. Atami became the public face of a public outcry against this recent rise of Yakuza society. And in the next five years, Atami made four more films, until rumours started to surface that his next film was going to be about the suspicious relationship between the biggest Yakuza gang, Gotogumi, and a religious organisation called Soka Gakai. Then late in 1997, a tabloid was about to break a story about the suspicious relationship between the now 64-year-old Itami and a 26-year-old actress, full of stories about strange sex games and large, mysterious loans. Itami dismissed these rumours and gave rational explanations about what the evidence was actually showing. However, two days before the publication of the article, on December the 20th, 1997, Itami apparently leapt to his death from his office window. A printed note was left on his desk saying, My death is the only way to prove my innocence. I cannot find any other means to prove that there was nothing. A picture of Nobuku Miyamoto was left on the computer screen and in his note he referred to her as the best wife, mother and actress in Japan. Something smelt off. Suicide to protect one's honour was so traditionally Japanese and that seemed counter to everything that Atami had criticised in his films. And he had published his opinions on affairs in the past. He didn't s seem to be someone who would be shamed by a public outing of such a relationship. The obvious theory arose that the Yakuza murdered Itami. The police investigated this angle, but their final verdict was suicide. Itami did not want a funeral, so somewhat fittingly, his family members gathered to watch his films at a memorial service instead. Ten years later, an investigative journalist, Jake Adelstone, was interviewing members of the Gotogumi gang. One said while he didn't commission the post-mimbo slashing, but felt immense pride at those who did it. And more importantly, another confessed to being at Itami's supposed suicide. We set it up to stage his murder as a suicide. We dragged him up to the rooftop and put a gun in his face. We gave him a choice. Jump and you might live, or stay and we'll blow your face off. He jumped. He didn't live. Now to this day, no one has actually been charged with Atami's murder, and his wife was under police protection for two decades after her husband's death. Whatever the truth, I do suggest you go find a copy of Tampopo, or Mimbo, and discover the talent of a man who is brave enough to take on Japanese society and organised crime. And whilst that stand may have cost him his life, his legacy lives on. Well, well, thank you again, Stephen, for that <laughs> wonderful uh, story about the dark celebration isn't cinema. Um, on a lighter note now, um, we are obviously going to be asking you, the viewer, to decide our next vote, vote for our next film, as it is, of course, Christmas, which, of course, here on the uh, show means Kaiju Christmas is here once again. And for our third year, we are going to be changing things up again, as we are going to be throwing out to you uh, to choose one of the following Gamera movies, because 
Um, last year we looked at we looked at uh, destroyer monsters, and you know while that was a lot of fun, we just felt that if we put it to the vote again, we got a chance that obviously it's going to be another Godzilla movie that uh, gets picked because we know how frenzied the Godzilla fans are. So we just wanted to uh, obviously mix it up and this way we're going to obviously look at Godzilla's only real rival in uh, Kaiju Cinema and that is obviously Gamera um, so the films that you can choose to vote on we have got Gamera vs Baragon uh, this is the second film and it's very popular with the MST3K uh, crowd as uh, Baragon is obviously a monster that can shoot rainbows from its back and has a freeze ray and uh, yeah it's uh, Anyone who's seen the MST3K episode will no doubt be quite geefully shouting the screen, Missiles hate Rambos. Um, next up, uh, we have Gamma vs. Gaios. Gaios is one of the sort of main regular sort of monsters within the Gamma universe. It's kind of like a pterodactyl style monster. And uh, this was one of the first encounters with the creature, uh, with the two monsters passing out. Um, next up, we have uh, one of my personal favorites, and that's Godzilla vs. Giron. Giron is kind of like a dog with a knife strapped to its head. Uh, it's a space monster, and again, this one features some interesting sequences, including Gamera doing the parallel bars. And uh, yeah, it kind of only serves to emphasize the sheer randomness of uh, of this series. And uh, finally, we've got Gamera Free: Revenge of Iris. Uh, despite what the title says, this is actually the third part in the new Gamera trilogy, which was released in the 2000s. And for myself, this is the strongest of the three, and possibly one of the best Gamera movies uh, that has been made. But I don't want that to obviously swing your vote. So. If you head over to our blog, uh, which is asyncinemafilmclub.wordpress.com, you can cash your vote for what you would like us to be watching for the next Kaiju Christmas. And uh, let us know which of those Gamma movies uh, you feel we should be obviously watching on the next episode. Um, Stephen, how excited are you at the prospect of watching Gamma movies? That's what I thought. I'm over the moon, mate. Actually, it's partly my fault. It's partly my fault, isn't it? Because I think I actually said I did like a Gamera movie. So I've only, I, I, I've watched the only Gamera movie I've ever watched is the first part in the reboot. So the Garden the, of the, the Universe, part number one of, yeah. The, yeah. And I thought it was absolutely fucking brilliant. So um, I'm kind of keen. And if it ends up being us taking the mick out of it, so be it. But I'm hoping I'm really going to love it. It's a giant fire-breathing space turtle. With jet engines. <laughs> yeah, it can fly. It's... It flies by spinning around. I mean, how can you not be excited by the prospect of this? It, As I said, it, it breathes fire. And unlike the Gamera movies, uh, these films were not like afraid to show collateral damage. There's a lot more violence and gore. So why are you think, thinking, oh, you know, it's just a Godzilla movie, but with like a dopey giant space turtle? No, they're completely different. You know? No, I'm, I'm, I'm really be... excited. So hopefully the audience will choose a uh, an entertaining movie for us for Christmas. I'm really curious to know which way they're going to go. Uh, as I said, I'd be happy, happy with any of those for when. But it's going to be interesting to see where, where they sort of cast their vote so i'll be very excited to see uh the vote as i said that you can vote uh as of now the vote is live so uh make sure you head over to uh, asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com on there as well you can not only find the complete archive of all episodes you can also find our fun written columns such as the anime vote uh you can find the transcripts of Siemens tales from the Asian Cinema Dark Side and uh, more recently we've uh, been joined by Derry Brook of Blueprint Review he's going to be writing uh, some movie reviews for us as well uh, for the movie vault uh, the first of which is the Shambara movie Bloody Spirit Mount Fuji uh, from Tomu Uji Dia uh, this is from 1955 um, so if you're a fan of uh, classic samurai movies, then uh, definitely give that a read as well. Um, as well, if you uh, haven't done already, you know, please do uh, hit the like and subscribe buttons. We listen to us on Podomatic or iTunes. 
um, or if you're listening to us uh, for the that moment in .com podcast network, uh, you know, let us know what you think of the show. Leave us a rating; it all helps get the awareness out there. Um, as well as that, you can also follow us on both on Facebook and Twitter, as well as on Instagram as well. So definitely plenty of ways to get involved for the show and uh, let us know what you're thinking. Let us know some thoughts on Asian cinema. We uh, definitely always love to hear from you guys. We are going to take a quick break though, and when we return, we're going to be diving into our selection for this episode, which is The Night Comes for Us. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Recall Podcast here at ThatMomentIn.com. I am your host, The Vern, and on each episode, myself, along with a guest, we'll be talking about an iconic scene from a classic movie. Which films will we be discussing? Well, that's all up to you, because before each episode airs, we're going to be giving you a poll of great fits to choose from. Whichever one gets the most votes, that's the one we'll be talking about. So, listen to the Cinema Recall Podcast on the site thatmomentin.com or on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Podomatic, or SoundCloud. Thank you very much, and hope you enjoy it. And we're back. Uh, you, of course, are still listening to the Asian Cinema Film Club, and tonight we are going to be looking at The Night Comes for Us. Um, this was a this is a 2018 Indonesian action thriller written and directed by Timo Tajanoto, who previously gave us both Killers and Headshot. Um, as we said before, this is kind of like a spiritual successor to uh, the. The, the raid movies yeah especially as gareth edmonds doesn't seem to be bringing us the raid free anytime soon i'm not sure exactly what he's doing but no doubt you know counting that huge pile of money he made from those two movies this is a film as i said this was shown at fantastic fest and picked up pretty shortly after by netflix and making it their first indonesian production and it's even more amusing the fact that it's actually been sort of banned netflix as a subscription service is banned in Indonesia so I'm not sure how that really works out well for the uh, distribution over there but certainly since this film's come out I know that both like the Asian sort of cinema blogs and like the cult cinema blogs there's been a blaze where people wanting to talk about this movie and it's going to be really interesting to obviously sit to talk to you about this one soon because I know this isn't the most subtle of movies and I know you like your movies a little more subtle than I do so I'm gonna be very interested to see where on the fence you uh, where you where you sit on this one. I, d- I didn't see subtle anywhere in the script. <laughs> what are you saying? This is a a touching tale of a crime enforcer uh, here played by by Joe Taslim, who you, again you probably recognise from both Headshot and The Raid, um, who is part of this group set up by the. Uh, the triads known as the six C's and basically they're this group who go around and they enforce the will of the triads to make sure that everybody is following the rules and doing what they're supposed to do and now while he's on a job to, and he's sent to massacre this village where these fishermen have been basically taking a sneaky cut he has a complete change of heart and decides to rescue this young girl called Rena um, in turn turning his back on the triads and finding himself suddenly with all manner of hitmen suddenly coming after him um now this film is as i said it's very similar to the raid in the fact it's just excessively bloody and violent and it's a real sort of standout uh for if you're a fan of the the martial arts fighting style uh, that we obviously saw in those films which is a uh, pink hat silat uh, so this is a fighting style which utilizes elbows knees and knives as its three main criteria it might give you an idea of what you're going to expect and there uh, certainly i thought i knew what i was going to get into going into this one only to find myself more than a little surprised as what uh, what we did actually get but i mean steven what's your sort of opening thoughts on this one it's very violent <laughs> to say the least. Um, I mean, um, I, it's it's almost more like a horror movie than an action movie. The copious yeah. amounts of blood and broken limbs and things that happen to people are. It, it's more akin to a, a the greatest hits of a slasher film than a. Um, 
than what a traditional martial arts action film is, which are usually punctuated by moments of violence, whereas this one, that's the narrative. And there's a <laughs> tiny little 10-minute segment where they pause to take breath before starting again. Um, yeah, it's 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 very violent and will scratch certain itches amongst certain people, I think. It's a, yeah, it certainly does. Um I don't. I mean, it's funny. I mean, you obviously made the comparison to horror films because in one of the groups that uh, that we hang out, that I hang out, and I think you do as well, Stephen, uh, the German's Guide to Midnight Cinema, they actually got uh, brought up the question of whether this film is like the next evolution in torture porn, and I personally can can see it because I personally, when I look at this film, I feel that it, it keeps in tune with both the fighting style and the style that they're actually wanting to go with the film in that it's got a sense of realism and that these characters are put in very sort of life and death situations where you basically do what you have to do to survive and uh, in this case that basically means breaking a lot of bones and using any implement you can to jam it into someone else if you come out with this with any sort of limbs intact you're normally doing pretty well to say the least in this film but I mean, the story itself, uh, obviously we've got with the, you know, the former enforcer going on the run and turning against his own, his old bosses. It's not a thing that we haven't seen before, but obviously where he's obviously just been sent to face like wave after wave of these like hitman goons, including a pair of really vicious lesbian assassins here played by Hannah Al-Rashid and Ian Strasodrov. <laughs> um... How do you pronounce his name? Is it Strato Wadokyo? I want to say. I'm no doubt butchering the hell out of that. Um, Sastrawadio. Oh, what Stephen said <laughs> made it sound so much better. Yeah, they're um. Again, I sometimes I do feel a bit. There's a lot of um stuff we've seen before, and I'm sure we've seen the sort of the the lesbian hit girls before, haven't we? But they're kind of interesting and they certainly make a change from the the nigh on faceless goons with machetes which <laughs> which which come from every potential building orifice I think for most of the rest of the film so I was quite glad to see something else and 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 I suppose also we have another strong female character don't we on the other side with um Julia Stell's operator who is I even Whatever I may think of this film, she's cool as fuck. <laughs> and I'd happily watch oh, a yeah. film with her in it. I think this is the thing. I think if we if they do any sort of sequel from this, and it's going to be hard to say to do any sort of sequel with this because there's not many people left standing by the end of this film. Um, I would love to see an operator spin-off. Um, I mean, this is this is a girl who who basically almost loses a finger and then in the most badass moment I think of the year snaps her own finger off and continues fighting it's, it's so cool yeah she, I mean, she, she's the standout thing so from what I heard about the how this film was created was that originally it was going to be a comic book and then because all sort of the guys around it were all involved in the raid and stuff like that they decided let's just make a film anyway and the almost episodic nature of it and the fact they actually have planned for three or five films, <laughs> that's, that's that's the idea. I don't know if it'll happen. but Because I, I, I do feel it lacks a very strong narrative. I'm not even sure what half the people are doing. You know, we've got this concept of the of the six, um, uh, what are they called, the six Cs, the, 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 the enforcers yeah. for the triad who are allowed to do anything. I'm sure they're only allowed to do anything with regards to the... Um, to the criminal world, I'm sure they don't have rights to do anything in in normal society, but the police seem complicit in this as well, don't they? Um, later on, um, but there just seems to be just seems to be really cool scenes, um, very long, very violent scenes um, that are joined together and would probably make sense in a in a sort of linear but not constrained comic book world where you could actually every fifth episode have a little calm bit and explain what's been going on, but but have this very visual, very visceral um, majority of it. 
but you wouldn't need it to tie together like a, a film sometimes has to. Um, so I can, I can, I can kind of see it's how it's become is born out of its um, early, early conception. And then you sort of read, oh yeah, we just got anybody who came along who's willing to come along and get a little bit hurt and not sue us. <laughs> that was my favourite quote about the whole thing. It's, I mean, yeah, I mean, as you said already, I mean, we've got a lot of, if you've seen, like, the Red Moods, I mean, a lot of these, this cast can be familiar. I mean, we have Eco Ewers. Uh, obviously, the main guy from the raid uh, turns up, and he plays the former lieutenant and, and best friend Aaron. And he's just introduced. He's basically been since uh, since his obviously his time working with the Six Seas. He's been sent off to Main Cat, and he's basically running the casino for the triads over there. And we have this we have this great scene where he's dealing with this gangster and it's basically as i said every scene is just basically uh let's set a sequence up then let's have a bunch of people get horribly mutilated and butchered to hell and then we'll have a little bit of a narrative and then let's set up another fight scene and as you said there's just like wave after wave of machete welding goons the same way that john woo has guys in white jumpsuits ready to just pour out of the walls at any given moment um and it i mean i was watching it obviously thinking oh my god you didn't like the subtlety of the killer god knows what you're going to think of this one because i mean there is no subtlety to this this is just a non-stop sort of ride of violence and brutality i can't even think of an amusing way to say how unsubtle it is i mean it's it's just violence it's well done um but I, i i do feel you could take 20 minutes of this film any 20 minutes and stick it in any other film and that film will become a great action movie <laughs> it's, it's like a, it's like a, a like a resource you should be able just to take things from and stick into other movies to make them better um, because you know, I mean there's other things what's the other character I really liked I like white boy Bobby uh, Zach, Zach Lee's character was absolutely freaking brilliant it's like this limping apparently caucasian fella um that, yeah, that, that, I mean, that, that, that could just take down a whole a whole load of these guys with a pen knife <laughs> it was just like and however much he got hurt he kept on going i mean that whole sequence in um what's the fella called in fatty's apartment it must go on for 40 minutes or that's what it felt like and just people kept on coming and they just kept getting more and more hurt but they kept on fighting back it was amazing well, let's not forget Bobby is also a one-legged former drug addict. Yeah, sorry, did like I forget to mention that? Bear of a man. I <laughs> um, just just the look uh, when you um, when his foot falls off, and just the look Joe Taslim has on his face when he sees his foot on the floor is just it's just priceless. But there's so many there's so many moments in this film which you're not sure they're supposed to be funny or not, like. Uh, there's a fight scene at the end where where Tazam's fighting these like goons that are on fire, and he's doing it in front of a safety first sign, and you're thinking, surely that's that's that can't be intentional, can it? I, I mean, I, I think it probably was. <laughs> I I actually so so you you brought up my uh, not being bowled over by the killer. I actually enjoyed this a lot more than the killer. Oh really? But. Not as a film, but as a series of really interesting moments. Um, it's sort of like um, it's like a mixtape of violence, <laughs> and and it definitely and, is. And, it's kind of like you're watching a showreel, isn't it? It is. Uh, that, that's what it felt like. And not only that, there were several good characters in there in a comic booky kind of way. You know, there's White Boy Bobby, there's the operator, there's Elena and Alma that you've already alluded to. And of course what what actually happens is is that our main two guys, um, Ito and Arian, are really friggin' boring compared to everybody else around them. Um and that that that's what kinda lets lets it down for me is that the leads are the although they're very excellent fighters and stunt people and whatever else they might be, 
um, the actual characters they're playing are the most boring things about the movie. I have one other question as well. Okay. What happened to Ito's girlfriend? <laughs> oh, she she's set up to be a major part of the plot, and maybe woman in peril. <laughs> they just push her out of the way after thirty minutes, and she never comes back. <laughs> it doesn't. That's the problem. Is that the film seems to get so preoccupied with violence, and certainly how we can work in more violence that. Uh, there's a, the plot itself seemed like very nonsensical to me myself. Um, it starts off okay, like obviously where where Ito is, as I said, he, he he's introduced and he he's getting the gang back together to help him deal with all these hitmen that are going to be come looking for him, and he goes off to see his former colleague Johan, who is this butcher that also has got a sideline in torturing people and he's supposedly got this this money that he left behind um and again that's a really cool sequence where he's fighting all these like butcher hitmen and you've got like he's using like uh the the shin bone and uh you know like the the uh, circular saw and stuff oh there's lots of really cool stuff there and it brought to mind uh chocolate uh which obviously followed in the wake of Ombark. and it's it it was almost exhausting. There's so much violence in this movie, and I mean, this isn't a short movie. This is like two hours long. This film is, and I felt myself like exhausted after the first hour with just the sheer amount of violence. It it felt like I was kind of numb to what I was watching, and I don't know how you felt. I mean, did you break it up at all? Or did you watch it just in one go? I amazingly again. There's two things about me everyone knows now. I don't really watch anime, and any film that's over an hour and a half long has really got to earn it. I actually did watch it end-to-end, but I was absolutely exhausted by it. I mean, it's... it's, Some some of that violence is stomach-churning, isn't it? I mean, it's... Like I say, I feel it's more like a... Almost more like a horror film. Um, But if I just watched it in segments... I don't know if my enjoyment or lack of enjoyment of it would have been changed at all because of the showreel nature of it. I'd have just yeah. been I'd have just been spreading it out over five hours or five days. Um, it doesn't. You don't. There's no story to keep up with. You don't have to worry too much about subtitles. You don't have to worry too much about stories and who's who. I mean, luckily everyone looks different. You know, the the, the main characters are all so comic booky. That um, you can keep track of everybody and on whose side everybody is, um, and then there's just there's just like the sea of the machete wielding fellas around that you don't really care about. So it's got again. I I think comic book horror hit, masquerading as a thriller film is is the only way I can do it. But it was it was fine. It was okay. I just don't want to watch another one. <laughs> really? Because um, obviously, I mean you. If you like this, I mean, you obviously have got Headshot, which is is kind of kind of similar, and obviously with the Raid films. I mean, this seems to be the thing that we're seeing a lot with it, when we have these Indonesian sort of martial arts movies is the fact that you have these colourful sort of standout sort of characters, and it, as I say, it does feel very comic booky when we look at all the main sort of characters. They're all these sort of like larger than life characters. It's kind of like when we look at the Raid two, and you've got like Bat Boy and Hammer Girl. All the everyone sort of has a thing, and even back with the raid one, you've got like Mad Dog. It's like everyone has a thing, and again, when we we look at the night controls, it's the same thing here. And when we look at like the lesbian hit woman, uh, one of them's got like this thing, which is basically like a cheese wire with a with a weight on the end, which causes you all kinds of horrible damage when it attacks you. And um, certainly when and and this is something I will give it credit for is that. The last sort of big fight is a is between two female combatants, and it's arguably the most brutal fight of the film, which is something I always like to see. Nice to see some equal opportunities for brutality, um, including uh, the ending, which is just absolutely jaw dropping. I don't think I've I've seen an ending like that. So, but I mean. It's funny you obviously mentioned the fact that they're planning to make it about five because we only do actually see only two of the six C's. So, despite how it ends, I think there's obviously the potential to reveal who the other ones are. Yeah, I th- I, I I think it's been very much designed to be a 
what's the word like a franchise um and and fair play to it i mean it's it's been getting astonishingly good reviews from people that i have a lot of time for um yeah i thought i was going to hate it i didn't mind it at all but i don't think i'm eagerly awaiting another one you know um and and again if these guys can be used in a more sparing way and we can put a bit of story on it as well. I mean, I think that's what the raid had. I really liked the raid. And the raid had a very simple story. You've got to get from the bottom to the top or something like that, isn't it? Of the, of the, yeah. the end. It had a, it was a quest. And along the way, um, you know, fights happened and stuff happened and people died and people survived and things like that. And you had some really great moments in that. But I felt it had a, it had a simple but strong narrative. You're getting from A to B. Backstories didn't really matter too much. It was very similar to um, another film that came out at the time. It's like identical to Judge Dredd, but hey ho! But I thought it was—it's—I <laughs> thought it was really odd. enjoyable. I mean, I, I mean, I was just going to say about Je- the whole Judge Dredd thing is the fact that both films went into production at the same time. So it's not like one was like. It's not like the judge makes Judge Dredd like they saw. Oh well, the raid. Let's go and copy that. Um, it just happened to be the case that you know both went into production at the same time, and anyone who's obviously taken a sort of writing class would know that the first thing they tell you in writing class is that there are no original ideas; there are just variations on themes. Oh, I know. I wasn't insinuating any copying. This happens all the time. For the, the ideas seem to come up, but I I love both films. I love both the Red yeah. and Judge Dredd. So don't sorry, don't anyone think I was I was having a go at one or the other. I really like the raid. Wasn't such a fan of Raid Two. Um and I haven't seen Headshot. But um Yeah, I, this is this was this was great. And it's always great to see stuff from Indonesia as well. Which I think is a, a strong market um that that doesn't always get the love amongst Asian film fans that it should. I think Indonesia is becoming I mean, it's becoming really the new sort of country of interest to ourselves as Asian cinema fans. Because obviously, back when I started getting into Asian cinema, it was like The Raid and Ring coming over. And then we obviously had films like Park Chan-wook and uh, things like Joint Security. So we had like this influx of Korean cinema. Now we seem to be moving towards Indonesian cinema. And we have things like Ombak originally and sort of cooled off a bit um, around the sort of like the raging phoenix and then we've sort of had this second burst now with uh since like the raid well on back and raging phoenix are thai films and chocolate so that whole they're all from thailand but i get your point that it seems that that, that a certain region gains prominence it, doesn't it see my i'm sure i'm just from my ignorance here now so <laughs> thank you Stephen, for that one <laughs> But yeah, I mean, just saying that the but they're both obviously coming from areas where you wouldn't assume that they have film industries. Oh, and and, and if not, like, film industries sort of a really strong crop of of martial artists. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that, I mean, you kind of assume that it's going to be sort of very sort of niche filmmaking and very much for its region that it's it's producing films for. You don't think that they would have this sort of crossover appeal to Western audiences and then you wouldn't expect to see films such as like The Raid, um and and this film, these films which are essentially reinventing martial arts cinema. And they're making with... household names of like you said, in, in those in those Thai films, Tony Jar, and here we've got Iko Uwais who who, you know, he's a he's a he's a known name now, isn't he, in um in this in this action film genre. Yeah, I mean they both. Uh, well, uh, they certainly. When you look at like uh, Star Wars: Force Awakens, uh, Eco obviously appeared in that one. Um, Tony Jaa obviously has recently turned up in Fast and Furious. So you see more and more of these actors there. They come over. Their films sort of get picked up, and then you start seeing them in like these Hollywood productions and stuff. And it's it's kind of nice that the fact that we're having more of a. Uh, international feel to Western cinema now, and the fact that these actors are able to get work with the system, and they're not just playing like generic stereotypical roles the way that we saw like the like sort of like Jackie Chan and Jet Li being sort of reduced down to. Um, so and Chang Yun Fat, especially when we look at the sort of the tail end of his Hollywood career, and he's doing things like Bulletproof Monk. Um, so. I'm I'm really excited to obviously see where 
this new stream of Indonesian cinema especially comes comes through. Um, especially if they're just producing things like Killers, like Headshot, like um, The Raid. It's, it's really interesting to see because these films just feel so fresh um, compared to what we've what we've seen. And I think it's, I'm not sure if it's just like the increased levels of violence or the, so obviously this is a very unique and different fighting style that we're not obviously used to. Um, what it is that makes them feel so fresh, but it, it's certainly exciting to uh, to see these films coming across, and they're, and they're really competently made. I mean, that's that's not, you know, that, 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 that this this you can see why this has been picked up by Netflix. It looks really well made, competently directed. Um, there's a few bits where clearly it's rubbery arms, but on the, on the whole, you know, you couldn't say this was any less well made than a film from South Korea than from a film from Hollywood, could you? No, definitely not. Um, it's just how they follow it up. I mean, <laughs> just in terms of the story, as I said already, I mean, this ends in a very sort of closed manner. I don't, <laughs> can't see how they could go from from the end point that we have in the story here uh, into another one, unless they do like some miraculous save for some of these characters. It's going to be very sort of difficult to see how they will continue the story. Um, the, the thing I read is that they'd like to do a, a further story about the operator, but um, and like you say, there's 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 three or four other members of the Sea Seas gang that um that we could come and pick up on, couldn't we? But uh, I think they need yeah they have a mythology they've built up, but they haven't really done enough with it. So they they could. I think I surprised you by saying I kind of enjoyed it. <laughs> I am surprised. I thought they would be. They was it was going to be sort of too over the top um, and too too over the top, too violent, and it was just not. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, it. I didn't necessarily enjoy it as a as a film, but I enjoyed it as moments of cinema, if that makes sense. And um, <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not desperate to watch it again, but uh, I can see why it's got all the love it's got. Okay. Uh, further viewing, what do you want to pair it with? Um, I've got a couple of films. Um, the first one's an Indonesian film <coughs> by um, Joko Anwar, who's probably the preeminent um, Indonesian film director. Um, this is a film uh, from 2012. Um, its actual name is Modus Animali. But um, I think in the States and the UK it was called Ritual. Um, it's got it's got Hannah Al Rashid is in it as well. So um, there's, if you want if you want to link the films together, um, it's a really high concept film. A man wakes up not knowing who he is or what he is in a from a, from half buried in the ground, wakes up and. Um, in the middle of the forest and comes across a family of um, a family in a holiday home and, and feels like he has to exact revenge on them. Um, it's kind of violent. It's got a really fun twist, but if you don't get what the twist is from what I'm struggling not to tell you about <laughs> right right now. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting. And Jocko Anwar is a really great director who um, really works around lots of different, sorts of genres from horror to um film noir to um this 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 film ritual which is is probably as easiest to understand and the other one i was going to time out with something funny enough you mentioned a bit earlier which is um ryuhei kitamura's verses which okay i can't stand but <laughs> <laughs> but you lot can watch yeah, it. But um, lots of other people really do like it, and it just reminded me of that with all the sort of the zombies and the forest full of people that just keep on coming, and it's very stylish. It's just yeah, it's just nonsense, really. But um, it just reminded me of that in some ways. If I you you couldn't actually pair it with something that was completely as violent as that because you'd just be. In a gibbering wreck, but yeah, I, I, I'd put verses, but certainly um, ritual. How about you? That's 
for myself, I mean, the most obvious one that sort of jumps out at me would be the story of Ricky O. Um, before this film came out, it was probably the most violent Hong Kong movie, martial arts movie of all time. And this is a, it's a prison movie uh, combined with a bit of martial arts, and it's just absolutely bonkers. Chances are that uh, you've seen various gifts of it around already, floating on the internet. Um, basically, it uh, follows this this martial artist called uh, Ricky who is uh, sent into uh, this prison run by a sadistic warden. He basically has to battle his uh, way for the prison to take out the warden. Um, what makes this film sort of stand out so much is the fact that it's both over-the-top violent, but it's so comedically over-the-top violent in the fact that uh, there's a scene where a guy turns up and immediately has his head smashed. Uh, Ricky has his arm torn and has to tie his tendons together in one memorable scene before the finale where he basically just punches his way through a wall. It's um, an absolutely bonkers movie. It's just so funny and just sheer random. It's uh, worth checking out. And I think it's on the same levels of just gratuitous violence as The Night Comes to Us. So I think if you enjoy this one, then you probably get a kick out of that. Um, the other one that I want to uh, go to is Chocolate, which I feel is very underappreciated. Sort of, there was some excitement when it came out and... Since it's since then, it's sort of like fallen back under the radar. So I think it's definitely one worth checking out. Uh, where you have this former crime boss um, who is suffering, for, who has become ill, and her daughter who is able to memorize martial arts movies from watching them on TV. Uh, basically, sets out to get back the money that she's owed from various crime bosses. Um, it's a fun, really fun movie, and uh, from the same team that obviously brought you Ong Bak, uh, which gives you any sort of indication on the sort of bone crunching martial arts to expect in it. It's uh, definitely a fun ride, and uh, also features an absolutely adorable female lead in it as well, who will both uh, melt your heart and break your face at the same time. So. Uh, chocolate would be my other recommendation to go with that. Um, uh, yeah, G.J. Yanin is fantastic, and um, I love chocolate, and I was going to pick it as a future film, so we'll uh, we'll get to talk about that in more depth, because um, even though I'm not a big martial arts man, that's a film I love. Yeah, I don't... I mean, what happened with the sort of Thai martial arts sort of revolution there? Because, I mean, as I said, we had Tony Jaa, who was... Well, Tony Jaa, I think that's a, another story altogether. I mean, the fact that he comes, he has like this immense and burst of fame with like Onbark and Warrior King, and then suddenly disappears, and the studio track him down in a monastery. Um, and then it was sort of like the whole scene just went kind of really quiet. I mean, when you had films such as like, uh, I think it's like The Bodyguard and Born to Fight, and we just didn't really hear anything after that. It was sort of like this quick burst, and then uh, things sort of went quiet on the whole. Indonesian, so the whole Thai filmmaking front. Yeah, all sort of around um, Prashia Pinkau, the the director, and you know, as always with these things, you know, he's he's everything seems to circle around him, whether he's making them or if he's discovering people. Um, I think it just got stuck in a loop of let's make sequels to Wong Bak and make sequels to Tom Young Gong, and and I don't know it's maybe there wasn't the 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 wider cast to and the wider bunch of filmmakers to make it a proper scene i think it was all stuck around him and that that would worry me about tonight's group of filmmakers and actors who are all sort of making the same sort of films and it's a very incestuous clique um yeah and sometimes these some of these people need to break out into other genres. Um, but maybe we'll talk about that when we talk about chocolate. Cool. Um, well, that brings us to the end of another edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club. We hope, as always, you've enjoyed listening. Um, again, if you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe buttons where you listen to us on iTunes, Podomatic, or through thatmomentin.com. Uh, we do appreciate uh, everyone who uh, listens and downloads the show. And uh, as always, you can check out our archive and other fun writings over on our blog, 
which is asiancinemafilmclub.wordpress.com as well you can also keep in touch with us both on twitter facebook and instagram as well so uh definitely you know let us know your thoughts on uh asian cinema and on the films we've obviously been discussing this evening we'd certainly love to hear from yourself um also if you go over to the blog you can vote for the next episode which of course will be kaiju christmas as we mentioned earlier in the show uh we have got your selections all up there and ready to vote so whether it's going to be Gamera versus Baragon or Gaios or Giron or we're going to be going to going to look at the rebooted trilogy and look at uh, the Revenge of Iris uh, it's going to be exciting to see which way you vote especially after how close the Halloween vote was I'm very excited to see where you uh, your vote for the Gamera vote so but uh, until next time, uh, thank you for listening, and thank you to my co-host, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Thank you for having me. And uh, this is Elwood Johnson, another edition of the Asian Cinema Phone Club. Wishing you all a good night. Yo, no, 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 no,